Ready to add a big dose of positivity and empowered perspective to your day? You've come to the right place. Welcome to She Said, She Said podcast. I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. Here, we tackle everything from imposter syndrome and confidence building to the best advice on how to lead yourself through life pivots, including the ones that knock you flat. For the past three years, I've talked to hundreds of experts about their stories. Here, you'll find their actionable advice and lessons, as well as my own tools that you can put to use in your own life. Stick around. I think you'll find this investment in you well worth it. Hey, friends, got such a special show for you today. My guest is Julia Swag. Julia is a scholar and author who has written award-winning books on Cuba and Latin America and foreign policy. But her latest endeavor is actually a biography on Lady Bird Johnson. It's entitled Lady Bird Johnson Hiding in Plain Sight. Eight days after President John F. Kennedy was assassinated, then incoming First Lady, Mrs. Johnson, began recording her audio diaries. These entries continued until the Johnsons left the White House. More than 123 hours and more than a million transcribed pages of largely ignored firsthand perspective of what Mrs. Johnson was thinking. It also captures the role that she played in some of the most critical and historic events of the Johnson administration. This largely ignored treasure trove has been sitting at the LBJ School at the University of Texas since it was made available to the public just a few years ago. Julia has also produced an incredible podcast using these original audio recordings that are narrated by Lady Bird Johnson herself. The podcast is called In Plain Sight. It is absolutely fantastic. Both the book and the podcast are incredible. I'm a little obsessed with the podcast, as you could probably tell. And both reveal details that had not been fully understood about the impact and the leadership of Mrs. Johnson during her husband's administration. If you are a lover of history and always looking to understand more about the role of women in history, you are absolutely going to love this conversation. We're also going to talk a bit about Julia's own interesting career. Um, As I mentioned before, she is a scholar of Latin America. So what was it about the Lady Bird Johnson tapes that really captivated her attention and encouraged her to spend all of these years doing this incredible research? So much to cover in this episode. Julia, welcome to She Said, She Said. Laura, I'm so delighted to be here with you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm delighted to have you. As I mentioned to you before we started recording, I am fully obsessed with this podcast that you have created on Lady Bird Johnson. It is truly fantastic. As we get into this, I, I want you to tell us how you stumbled across these diaries. I mean, this was not your area necessarily of expertise, historical figures, former first ladies. Talk about what happened and what captivated you about these audio tapes, how you even learned about them in the first place. I love this thread. So let me just take it piece by piece and say, first of all, that my very first book that I wrote was based on unexamined material in archives as well. Although 
they were Fidel Castro's archives in Havana. And so, and, and retelling a story that we thought we already knew using the archives of the principal subject I'm writing about turns out was sort of already in my gray matter. I mean, I have put it together as that origin story now. I don't think I thought of it when I stumbled upon and it wasn't really a stumble on the Ladybird Diaries. But there is something really thrilling about being a historian who retells a story that's been told that the received wisdom says is X and demythologizing and debunking those those mythologies. So I did that with the way the Cuban revolution took place and how Fidel Castro took power. And I did that 20 years ago or something. And then, as you say, had a, a long career doing many other things related to Cuba and foreign policy in Latin America. And after doing that here in Washington, D.C. and in New York and traveling around Latin America, I just got to a point of sort of stagnation intellectually. I needed to teach myself something new. Mm. And I also had been working in foreign policy where the gender imbalance is very pronounced and sitting in rooms full of men, mostly as the only woman for years and years and years. I mean, that's a story we can all tell, but here it, it just, I got to the point where I wanted to try to pull back and write about women and power. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I didn't have a subject and I started sort of noodling this around and and how that, long ago was this? Okay, so this this tells you what a long project is. This was in 2012. Oh, wow. Um, actually, before I turned 50 years old, when I was 45, I always have a five-year plan. Uh -huh. And I needed to know that I was going to be making a pivot by the time I turned 50. So I, I'm not going to exactly tell you what the age and date, how that lines up. But the point is that it was quite a while ago at this point where I started to think I need to do something new. Mm -hmm. And so um, an acquaintance who I was talking with this about told me, you know, Lady Bird Johnson kept a diary and that I had no idea, but I did know that she is a person who's married, who was married to the American president, maybe most associated with the word power in the 20th century. So that, that, began a process of finding first her collected volume of edited diaries that she pr published in 1970. It was on the New York Times bestseller list for 13 weeks, but it's very redacted and very limited. And then I went to the LBJ library in Austin. This is a couple years later, having read as much of the secondary literature as I could. And in that library, and you hear this in the podcast, there's a museum. I don't know if you've been there. Your listeners have been there. So you walk into an exhibit space, which is about the LBJ presidency, actually his entire career. And it's very dark and dim. And a motion sensor triggers her voice. And it comes on and you hear her narrating her experience of the JFK assassination on November 22nd, 1963. And it's so gripping. And that of course opened the door to this multi-year process of listening to her audio recordings, all of them by now, and reading all of the transcripts and trying to put her back inside of the LBJ story because she'd been sort of marginal to the story as told until right. then. Why do you think she was so 
marginalized and why do we not know a lot? And we're going to talk in this conversation a lot about what you have uncovered through her diary entries, but why do you think she was so marginalized and why do I have the impression, even as a as a native Texan, of someone who was more frivolous, just focused on flowers and 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 beautification as something that is a frivolous idea as opposed to what it actually was and very complementary to other things that were happening in the administration. There's so there's a lot of answers to that. I mean, first of all, she on the, you know, she was a journalism and history major at UT in Austin. So she really had in her gray matter a commitment to recording and documenting even well before she met LBJ, right? That was before. But mm-hmm. as his career progressed, she started keeping records. And that material, I say that because on the one hand, she was very conscious of history and recording it, especially by the time they got into the White House. But on the other hand, she was a woman of her time who was very conscious too of, who, who acted, engaged in certain acts of subterfuge to conceal her power and influence. It wasn't even that she, I think, thought to herself, I have a lot of power and influence and I need to conceal it because I'm married to this charismatic, thin-skinned man and the country isn't ready yet for a powerful woman in the White House. That wasn't the narrative. It was more that this was her her training and her socialization. And I think she had a lot of modesty and self-deprecation. And so that's on the one hand that she was careful to mind how her public image, how she represented herself to the public. Although she had a very act, she was very activist, but she, she cared her, she cultivated her image carefully. Second thing is, though, of course, that the historiography, all of the history that's been written about LBJ, journalistic, historians, biographers, and this isn't unique to LBJ, but we're talking about that presidency, focus on the great man at in the Oval Office, right? That's the nature of presidential history, and it's the nature of, of male storytelling to maybe not look um, in a rounded way, it has driven, a, a, there's some blinders there. So the material that has been analyzed and studied and excavated has been of focus on LBJ and the people around him and not so much Ladybird, even though she was in the room all the time. Yeah, which was pretty unusual for the time, as I gather, right? You didn't have first ladies of that particular generation, if you will, who were that involved. I mean, Jackie Kennedy was not that involved in JFK's administration, at least as far as I know, right? And not involved in policymaking and didn't have offices and all of that. It it, it was a, a I, I think that her modernization of the East Wing as a component of the whole White House political operation is very significant. She's really the bridge from Eleanor Roosevelt to Hillary Clinton. I don't know if Lady Bird Johnson had security clearance, but she was certainly in the room and reading his documents. I mean, often the room was the bedroom, right? He famously had staff meetings in his bedroom all the time, and she was often there. 
when you just look at all of the images in the LBJ Library website, you see her in the Oval Office all the time. So I think it is unusual and not something we've known because they didn't broadcast it, but certainly LBJ knew it, she knew it, but they were careful to titrate the way the public received that information. Yeah. Talk about how her beautification efforts actually were such a pivotal part of the civil rights movement and this what became the civil rights bill. Talk about how those pieces fit together because I have to admit my ignorance. I really never thought about it in the way in which she was apparently thinking about it and in the way that you've presented it in the book and in the podcast. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, I was very surprised to find the way her time in the White House brought together civil rights and what we would call today environmental justice, Mm. especially in Washington, D.C. Beautification is the word that, you know, she says much later in her life, I'll never forgive Lyndon's boys for making me use that word as a cover for my environmental agenda. And she, she hated the word. She shed it off by the end of her time in the White House. She started out with this idea, which she put together with Stuart Udall, who was the Secretary of Interior and a very significant environmentalist, with the idea that she could use her first lady energy toward beautifying Washington, D.C. and making it a model for the rest of the country. But very soon into this process that involved philanthropists and landscape architects and garden club ladies and sort of big tent Johnson politics in a way, she started feeling quite uncomfortable with that, right? And so I think of her evolution as one that, and beautification as one that goes from ornamental, literally just planting flowers and beautifying. And we see that in Washington today, Washington's in bloom. And a lot of that is thanks to her from ornamental to fundamental. And this, and so she developed over time without a budget, right? The East Wing doesn't, can't pass legislation. It doesn't have a budget, but it has its famous and now very significant convening power. Partnerships with black Washington. Washington DC was the largest majority black city at the time, but it also in the 1960s and still today, I mean, obviously there's no statehood, but almost entirely unrepresented and incapable of of having its own budget and taxing authority and therefore participation for its citizens and decisions about itself. And with the segregation that came in Washington at the time, there was also total deprivation of public services in Northeast and Southeast and Southwest and all of the neighborhood, the non-white neighborhoods of DC at the time. So she started partnering with uh, a very special man who actually became the first elected mayor of Washington, Walter Washington, mm-hmm. who in nineteen six in the early 60s and late 50s was the head of the National Capital Housing Authority to try to bring the idea of empowerment and, and beautification together with that of representation and civil rights. And over the course of her time in the White House, deployed her staff from the East Wing and organized big money from civil rights supporting philanthropists and radical landscape architects from California to try to develop a way to convert all the green space along the Anacostia River, 
which of course is not the Potomac River and quite neglected, but controlled by the National Park Service into a desegregated uh, public recreation space where access to nature for the residents living there would be the priority. That's the, the, the story behind beautification in Washington, D.C., with Washington as the model for the rest of the country. It's absolutely fascinating. It just, as I have listened to this and as I've read your book, there were so many details that I just, I never put the pieces together. Um, so it's really, it's quite incredible. L- let's talk about her partnership with President Johnson and his reliance on her in a way that I think also surprises people, notwithstanding what you just said about her being in all these photographs and being in the room and in the Oval Office all the time and in their bedroom where he was conducting meetings and elsewhere, as I understand it, he would conduct meetings in other, what are otherwise known as private places. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about their partnership and how he relied on her. Well, by the time they got into the White House, and that's the primary focus of the podcast in the book are the White House years, they really had a joint political and business enterprise that they built and shared together. Lady Bird's activism as a business person goes back to her financing the acquisition of their radio station and her involvement in the growth of their media holdings in Texas. That begins in the 1940s. At the same time, as his congressional career grows, she's increasingly out on the hustings with him and you know, could famously memorize and repeat to him the names of everybody in the room of some fundraiser that she might have just been to. So they are, they are totally intertwined in terms of their political operation and their business operation. In 1960, this really becomes evident because he and she join the Kennedy ticket in that campaign. And Jackie Kennedy has been suffering miscarriages, doesn't want to go out on the campaign trail and risk another one. Lady Bird travels all around the country as Jackie's surrogate and as LBJ's surrogate. And of course, Bobby Kennedy famously says that Lady Bird won Texas for, for JFK. Mm-hmm. And so but I, I, I'd say that by way of background, because by the time they take office because of the tragedy of the assassination, their jointness is, is you know, they're totally inseparable in terms of, of their vision for the country domestically, and also in terms of their awareness of how difficult it's going to be to keep the country united. And they feel very readily the tension between being pushed to escalate in Vietnam and their desire to, to deepen the progressive social reforms that started under FDR, who was their idol. And, and so the, that joint enterprise continues from the day they enter the White House until the moment they leave. And it, it's manifest in her role in setting the arc of the presidency, meaning making sure that he runs in 1964 when he has many, many doubts, a big story that also was has not been told before. Mm-hmm. And also participating actively in his exit strategy that we see come to the surface March 31st, 1968, when he announces he won't run again. 
What did you learn, Julia, about, I mean, LBJ was a larger than life personality. What did you learn about their relationship on a more personal level and her ability to work with him, manage him to some degree? Um, There's a lot of complexity in this relationship. Talk about what you learned about that aspect of this partnership. So the the layers and complexity of the marriage, of course, anybody that's been married for more than a minute understands that, or married or together with anyone else for more than a minute understands that layers are and complexity are also impenetrable from the outside, right? Nobody knows what really goes on on inside of a marriage. That's the, the cliche, the truism, but it's true. And so my, I'm hazarding, I'm surmising here, making an intelligent guess, Laura. Um, because she didn't all, talk about this well, as so, much. Right? So of course, what has been talked about is a lot of emphasis on the negative sides of the marriage, on LBJ's infidelities, on his vulgarities, and um, on his mistreatment of her in public, verbally. And I just thought that and could see right away that clearly this is, I mean, it couldn't be but hurtful to her, but it paints her as his victim, that mythology, and it deprives her of agency and it neutralizes, minimizes, disappears her substance. So when I took the time to read all of the material, not just her diaries, but all of the policy material and campaign material, that are in the LBJ library and in other archives around the country, what you see is, is that what she brought to the table was the ability, as you say, not just to manage him, but to ground him, to give him. I mean, we talk about the emotional ballast that women in power, in marriages to powerful men provide, but it wasn't that just that it was political savvy. It was judgment. It was, a strategic mind. It was judge of character. It was a highly compartmentalized, contained personality who knew how to take care of herself so that she could take care of him. And by the time they get into the White House, that's an enormous amount of power that she exercises over him. So I place that into the full context and think, well, you know, every marriage has its trade-offs. I don't want to deny that it's horrible to, to know about his how, how busy he was outside of the marriage, but there's a much bigger picture and it's something that she clearly made peace with. What you hear in this material is how much she loved him. Right. And vice versa. Yeah. It's so fascinating. So one question that springs to mind um, that you reference in the book, and I believe you reference it in the podcast as well, is that you you hear elements of self-doubt, maybe even imposter syndrome or what we talk about as imposter syndrome now. And you think about this complicated relationship that she had with this very big personality, right? And how sort of where did that strength and that confidence come from to plow through that self-doubt that you hear? Well, one of my listeners wrote to me and said that she thought it was related to Lady Bird surviving the loss of her mother. Her mm. mother died when she was five years old. She was 
raised by her father, who was this larger than life kind of Tennessee Williams character. She was raised by descendants of enslaved people. This is in East Texas on the border with Louisiana and by an aunt from Alabama. She had a lot of grit and she, as a lifetime reader and a lifetime, a long lifetime person who sought solace in nature, she really did have the ability to, she was an incredible survivor and she was very, very intelligent. Um, But, you know, it's hard to know exactly what shapes people. Does trauma shape people or does opportunity shape people or a combination of both? And I think taking my cue from her too, she always talked about how Lyndon himself stretched her, Mm. how he pushed her to be her best possible self. So when we hear about those stories about him, her giving him, him giving her a hard time about her clothing, right? This wasn't, as much, you know, you don't look nice, be more semi or something. It was also, you know, rise to your capacity and show the world how amazing you are. The ability to depersonalize that, I think for an awful lot of women to get that what is feedback, and he probably didn't deliver it in the nicest way possible is my guess. So getting that feedback and not personalizing it you know, I I did not I was not aware of the relate sort of the father the fact that her mother had passed away and this idea of resilience and where that comes from. But that's a really interesting element, and you wonder if she saw, you know, in some respects, LBJ was similar to her father personality wise, perhaps, and that you know the training from a very young age and having somebody who was tough. Right. And not having that mother figure. It is different. You know, men and women, certainly in that in that decade, raised children differently and related to children differently. So you wonder. But he adored her. I mean, you know, and he gave her a lot of independence. She started driving herself to high school when she was 13 years old. You know, she was a woman of a young girl of privilege. She had a credit card to Neiman Marcus when she was in college and in fact, she never used it. And her, she was a bit of a, you know, I don't know if we use the term tomboy anymore, but it's interesting to me, you know, women have to sort of stuff ourselves into certain outfits and appearances and kind of show up in public looking certain ways that we're socialized to certainly in her era. And she never liked the idea of having to stuff herself into shoes and girly clothing. She got used to it once she became a political animal and a public figure, but it wasn't her nature. It wasn't her nature, but her father, back to the father, gave her a lot of autonomy gave her, I think, confidence, encouraged her intellect by bringing in this kind of um, eccentric aunt to help raise her who was an opera buff and read very well read herself. So I think she, by the time she meets LBJ, you're right, you know, she was trained to, to, to deal with the big personality. Um, but LBJ saw her very remarkable attributes. And that's something about him, you know, he... He was very good at spotting low ego, highly intelligent people Mm. and bringing them into his inner circle. And many of them stayed there for decades as the baby part. So fascinating. Let's talk a bit about her relationship with 
Mrs. Kennedy. Mrs. Kennedy had a very interesting persona and a very different role in the White House. Um, in you know later years, as we've uncovered in her own audio tapes, she says things that are not particularly kind. She said a lot of snarky things about a lot of people. But Lady Bird in particular, which is interesting given the role that Lady Bird played, as you just said, in serving as a surrogate for Jackie on the campaign trail and really helping the administration as a as a as a group. Maybe talk a little bit about their relationship, which as I understand it kind of evolved. But I found Jackie's comments to be, or Mrs. Kennedy's comments to be interesting given that relationship. Um it did evolve. Look, it, it's it's an interesting arc, and it goes from the 1950s until Jackie dies in the 1990s. In the 1950s, once LBJ becomes majority leader, he confer, his seniority confers to Lady Bird. So she's sort of the queen of the Senate spouses, and they meet once a month, and it's a time for intelligence gathering and intelligence spreading, and as I imagine it... Um, and she brought Jackie in and Jackie was a socialite. I mean, she was a debutante and an equestrian and she studied in Paris and she was very, very different in orientation and culture than Lady Bird. And each of them knew that, but they were very respectful to one another. Lady Bird, you can hear it on the podcast, speaks of her quite adoringly. Um, in 1960, the tables turn and, Lyndon loses in the first ballot in Los Angeles at the convention and Jack is now on top and asks LBJ to be his vice president. So suddenly the asymmetry that the Johnsons had been used to flips and they're on the bottom, right? Who wants to be vice president, but they couldn't find a way to say no. So Lady Bird becomes Jackie's surrogate as Jackie's trying to have more babies and Jackie's, not the political animal. I shouldn't say not entirely. She's not as much of a political animal as Lady Bird is. And the cultural differences between the Kennedy and Johnson clans become more and more uh, pronounced. And the Kennedy team is very, very negative about LBJ. You know, they spread these terrible kind of uh, cultural biases about the South and corn pone and all the kind of ways of smearing the Johnsons. And it's, very, very hurtful. Although between Jackie and Lady Bird and Lyndon, and even Jack, there is a kind of intimacy and understanding and mutual respect, especially between Jackie, Lady Bird, and Lyndon. Well, after the assassination, and I do want your listeners to listen to the podcast and read the book, so I don't want to give away the whole story. Jackie and Lady Bird orchestrate a really incredible transition, incredible in terms of its grace and its care and its, and its caution and the way they treated one another during that process. But once Jackie leaves Washington, D.C., the distance then does set in. And I think Jackie's snarkiness that you hear in talking about Lady Bird um, is very much tainted by Bobby Kennedy. Mm. who's lost his brother and who very much wants to be in politics. And he and Lyndon have what my friend, the historian Jeff Shessel calls mutual contempt and it infects everything. And I think it definitely affects Jackie. So by the time Bobby himself is assassinated and 
Jackie and Lady Bird see one another at his funeral, you really get a sense from Lady Bird's telling of it, and we hear it, and I write about it, of just how much distance is between the two of them. But they recover their relationship in the aftermath of LBJ's death and uh, Lady Bird's very long post-presidency. Yeah, she spent, uh, as I understand it, uh, time with Jackie on Martha's Vineyard at Redgate Farm m- multiple times, right? Which, which multiple sort of indicated, times. yeah, that they were have- for years in the 1980s. Yes, I would have loved to be a fly on the wall there. You know, they've opened that property up, um, but it's such a beautiful place. You're going to have to go, especially given your connection. What part of Martha's Vineyard is it in? It's in Aquena, and oh. so it's upper Upper Island, but it's absolutely gorgeous. When I started this research, actually, I put an ad out in the Martha's Vineyard Gazette just to see if anybody would respond to it who had like any kind of like experience with the two of them there. I didn't get one response. I kept it up there for eight months or something. No kidding. Okay. So I have a, what is maybe a mundane or may seem like a mundane process question, but um, in some of the photographs, I noticed, you know, she's, she's got her microphone, she's recording these diary entries, but there are envelopes that are dated behind her and there's a there's a you know piece of paper that she's reading from so was she writing these diaries in longhand and then recording them after the fact or was she doing it spontaneously or what was her process did you gather how she did this and why I did and it's an excellent question and not a mundane one because I think it goes Laura to what a can I say badass she was sure um so as I said, she was trained as a journalist and historian and what, and before she got into the white house and for probably we have decades of them, but they haven't been processed. She kept little tiny spiral notebooks with her and kept um, in Greg's shorthand, took notes on everything and even took notes. And I don't know if it was in longhand or shorthand on the flight back from Dallas to the White House, on the, uh, to Washington, D.C., on the day of the assassination. So this was a woman who was constantly gathering material. The way she produced her audio recording was not in longhand first. Her staff in those envelopes, you see, would put together for every day press clippings, Lady Bird's uh, daily diary, that is her schedule, Lyndon's schedule, memos, guest lists, all kinds of material that would allow her to then record her first draft of history. It's really kind of amazing. She didn't write her diary entries down first. Her first draft are recordings. Wow. And that's stunning, right? Because she yes. can sit there and, 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 and synthesize and tell a story and do it in these cogent paragraphs. She very seldom would rewind, rewind and re-record. Her straight first drafts were incredibly remarkable. And then they, before she left the White House, they started to transcribe them. That is fascinating. That, in fact, I find that quite stunning, um, especially as somebody who spends a lot of time in front of a microphone, to be able to do that spontaneously without editing, without pausing, without cleaning it up. Um, that is remarkable. And to tell a story that coherently, that's really She's something. the first podcaster in the White House. <laughs> she really is. <laughs> it is oh my God. why I agree. 
Yeah. What about the Johnson family, her two daughters and her grandchildren? Have you had contact with them and what do they think about this this project and their their mother slash grandmother? Well, I did ask both daughters, Linda and Lucy, to allow me to interview them during the writing and research process, but I didn't make any headway and so I didn't interview them. I, I don't think it was a, I, I'm not exactly really sure why, but subsequently I had the opportunity to go to Linda Robb's house because we taped a CBS Sunday morning program there. So I had the chance to share the book with her, look at the photographs, and I don't know what she specifically or Lucy specifically think of the book, but I have heard from some of the grandchildren. And that's been really gratifying because what they're telling me is that they love to hear their grandmother's voice and her spirit and um, that their friends are listening to the podcast and reading the book. And that just makes me feel very happy because I know if I, if that were my grandmother and I had been raised around this interesting, bright, articulate woman, being able to go back and listen to her, tell her story of when she was in the white house a wonderful experience. Yeah. I, I think for anyone who has living relatives who are older to sit them in front of a microphone as fast as you can and have them record their memories because the power of the spoken word, I mean, it's what makes podcasting so incredible as a tool. Let, let's talk a little bit about that, Julia, because you have embraced podcasting as a complementary tool. And I'm curious about why you did what you did. You've written this book, you've produced the podcast, which takes excerpts from different elements. And I'm not even sure how many episodes, I hope there's many more, but you've produced now seven or eight, I think at last count, seven. Um, And eight, eight is next week. I don't know when you're airing this, but there are eight episodes. Okay, eight total. And, and possibly a couple of bonus episodes in the works. Okay, great. Talk about your thought process and why you decided to do what you did. I assume you wrote the book first and then produced the podcast. But but talk, talk about sort of when it occurred to you that this would be a great thing to do. Well, I did write the book before I produced the podcast. But over the several years it took me to write the book, that coincided with the explosion of podcasting, right? I think Serial, which was the first big one by Laura Koenig, that came out when I was in the early stages of this process, or at least of the writing process. Because Lady Bird left this huge audio trove, right? It's 123 hours of tape. And because we hear her in her own voice, telling, narrating her experience of these iconic moments in Ameri- recent American history, it just seemed a natural fit to me that the book in and of itself, as much as I love the book, and I hope your listeners will read it, couldn't do full justice to her story. And that the ability to hear people in real time narrate their experiences is astonishing. And, and it, it brings things so alive. So As I was in the final stages of editing the book, I had a 
coffee with an old friend of mine, old friend, as in since we were teenagers in San Francisco growing up, who's um, had been in the film and entertainment industry for a long time and had just launched his podcast company, Best Case Studios. And we started talking about the Ladybird story and how we could turn it into an audio, basically an audio documentary, because that's what it is. His name is Adam Pincus, and he's really the creative genius, I think, behind the podcast because he's a musician. He's had a lot of experience directing. He directed me. He helped transform the story into scripts, and we pulled together a team that involved archival producers, so we were able to ferret out and pull in all that archival material from the period. And then we teamed up with ABC News, which was a huge help because we could use their archival material to really pull it all together. Um, and I love the format. You know, I there's the kind of podcasts that you do seem to be very accessible. And there you are, I'm looking at you and you're doing it. And I don't know, Laura, if you've taught yourself all of this or if you have a team <laughs> yeah, I use I use freelancers. Um, although at the moment and with COVID, we really had to stream sort of change everything. We were recording in a studio before COVID uh, on a weekly basis, and we had to obviously immediately pivot from that. So I had to figure out how to make Zoom work. And now, as as you know, we're using Squadcast, which is a mm-hmm. fantastic platform. But uh, but ultimately, I have a master's degree in broadcast, so I had oh, the fundamentals and then I have two degrees in journalism and government. So my career took a lot of different turns before I got back to where I think I probably was always supposed to be at some point in my career. Yeah, this idea of storytelling through this platform uh, was not something that I had necessarily thought that I would end up doing, but that's where I ended up. So I had some ability already in understanding how to edit and how to produce um, you know, we're a, we're a startup at best. So there's, I still have plenty to learn, but the fun, the basic fundamentals, you know, I had some background in. Well, the, I think it's, it's a really powerful medium. And, you know, you asked me if I had written the book before I produced the podcast. Yes, we produced the podcast for the, in the last six months of 2020 and um, released it for women's history month. If I, for my next work, you know, what I what I have in mind, and I don't know if you want to talk about that, but I, do. I might actually do more podcast production before I do my next book because it's a little bit more immediate and the 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 long, long grind of doing a major book like this can be very isolating. I mean, we're sitting in our living rooms doing this podcasting, but at least when, when I produced this podcast, I had a team and I had collaborators and I really, and I had research assistants doing the book too, but at the end of the day, when you're writing, it is you and you alone. Right. So I like the idea of the collaborative part of this and the storytelling that you mentioned. You know, there are so many other women, and this is a focus of yours, whose, whose stories are adjacent or hidden and who make up the fabric of who we are and who we're becoming. And I'm very inspired by Lady Bird's decision to leave that record. And I really want to see what else is out there in terms of audio record that can be 
uh, used to bring these people's lives to, 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 to the, to the light. Yeah. I, I love that. Do you have a specific project that you're beginning to work on that you want to talk about at this point, or that gives us some sense of where you may end up, but, but also like how you tie in, you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, your origin story mm-hmm. and why this appealed to you because of the work that you had done in Cuba and Latin America, and maybe sort of looking at other elements of pulling that, that thread. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, in, it's weird how much I found myself able to relate to Lady Bird Johnson, even though we're, we're from such totally different generations and geographies and demographics. But, you know, she's a political animal who lived in Washington, D.C. for 30 years, and right. so have I. And I, I say that because I'm not really, I don't know if I'll go back to Latin America and Cuba and American foreign policy because working in Washington, D.C., I just kind of maxed out on being in the policy uh, weeds. And especially, you know, once President Obama, this is a bit of a tangent, but it'll help explain. Once President Obama launched the diplomatic and commercial opening with Cuba, which is something that I was very involved in for a very long time, I kind of felt like I didn't have much more to add. And and in in the world of like foreign policy hierarchies, Latin America tends to be at the bottom of the priority list unless we're talking about the border. So I I don't know that I'll go back to that material, but I am really interested in maybe having a a way to find other people who have been working you know, who are also in plain sight and yet haven't gotten the credit or taken the credit, whether they're in the military or in science or in the judicial system. I mean, I think there are, as Mitt Romney lovingly told us, binders full of women. For sure. um, and, and so the question is to be able to sort of get back in when they open up into the archives to find out who else left the kind of material that can be um, used for audio. I ask um, everyone who comes on this podcast because impact is such a an important component of women's leadership and the impact that that you know we potentially want to have or we hope that our work will have. When you think about this body of work, what impact do you hope it will have on future generations? Well, not just future generations. I mean, first of all, I hope that the work will cause us to do a massive rethink of the LBJ presidency by putting Lady Bird in the room and at the center of so many discussions, upside and downside, civil rights, great society, and of course her blinders on Vietnam that she shared with him Mm -hmm. up until about the end of 1967. So I feel like the, 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 the focus on the LBJ presidency needs to have her in the center. And that goes to an issue of how how historians tell the story of the American presidency. Now, I think once we have a woman in the Oval Office, that will automatically shift the gaze <laughs> and, and also give space to more and more women to write presidential history. We don't have a, a surfeit of women writing presidential history, and that was one of the things I was trying to do. This book is a political biography, but it's also a story of the LBJ presidency, not just of Lady Bird herself. Yeah. 
Julia, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for the book and for the amazing podcast. I will include links to both in the show notes for the episodes, episode 149. Really grateful for your time today. Laura, thank you so much for having me. What a wonderful interview. I'm very happy to meet you. Hey, friend, thanks so much for joining us today. To learn a bit more about Julia Swag, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 149. I've also included links to both Julia's terrific book on Mrs. Johnson called Lady Bird Johnson Hiding in Plain Sight, as well as the terrific podcast called In Plain Sight. You'll find those materials, as I said, in the show notes for this episode. Now, before I let you go, I need your help. If you're enjoying She Said, She Said podcast, I would love to hear from you. And there are several ways that you can contact me and send us some feedback. The first, if you are listening on iTunes, is to click the review button there, give us five stars, and then write just a few words about why you listen to She Said, She Said podcast. Those comments help others who are looking for podcasts like this one to find it. And I also love hearing from you. You can also direct message me on Instagram at Laura Cox Kaplan or at She Said, She Said podcast. And finally, you can use the contact link at the She Said, She Said podcast.com website to send me a message as well. Be sure to include why you listen and what we can do to continue to improve this content and make it even more meaningful for you. Friends, most of all, I am so grateful that you've chosen to spend some time with us today. I hope you found this little investment in you well worth it. I'll see you next time. Until then, take care.